prayer. Father, thanks so much for a gorgeous day out. Thank you for your provision, for allowing us to be here to study, open our hearts, and help us to understand your truth in Christ's name. Amen. Um, today what we're going to do is we're going to talk about the offices of Christ. And uh, we're coming down towards the end now of Christology. We've got a couple more topics yet to discuss. And then we'll be all done with Christology. And then we're going to start the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. So that will be starting uh, towards the end of July. And we'll talk about spiritual gifts. We'll look at everybody's favorite topic, the charismatic movement, and look at it in light of Scripture. We'll even talk about tongues and all that good stuff. So uh, that's, that's uh, the next class. So anyways, um, when we talk about the offices of Christ... Oh, by the way, when, if Dan Sam shows up, the, the way you go back and forth is use the up arrow and down arrow. All right? <laughs> These poor guys, these poor guys who don't use advanced technology and have to use Office and Windows stuff, you know, they just can't handle it, you know. They can't handle it. I keep this thing on for like three months at a time and I never reboot it. I just close it and open it, close it, and it just works, you know. It's an amazing thing. Um, anyways, uh, enough beating on poor old Bill Gates. He's not there anymore. No, it's last day's tomorrow, right? It's last day's tomorrow. Wow. Okay. But when we talk about the offices of Christ, as you look at the Old Testament, there are three major offices um, that you find throughout the pages of the Old Testament. And of course, these offices are the office of the prophet, the priest, and the king. The prophet, priest, and king. And again, I think we got handouts coming, I hope, so um, hopefully we'll have them here pretty soon. But uh, what you see throughout the Old Testament is you see these three offices in, um, in operation. Now, um, let's see, I've got one, two, three, four. There are five men in here and the rest of you are women. So I hope I don't get in too much trouble here. But when you look at the offices of the prophet, the priest, and the king in the Old Testament, what gender fulfilled those offices? Men, all right? Um, that's not to say women do not have a prominent role in the Old Testament, but when it comes to the offices, when it comes to the prophetic office, you see that exclusively given over to men. And in fact, you only see, um, if I remember correctly, there's only like four instances in the Old Testament where it talks about a prophetess. Um, Deborah was a prophetess. It calls her a prophetess. Um, she was called prophetess because on one occasion she, of course, was the judge in Is- a judge in Israel, and she, of course, worked with Barak, right, who was the captain of the armies, um, and she was called a prophetess because she had a a role over a short period of time um, as a judge in Israel. You also have uh, two false prophetesses, and I can't remember their name. Um, Hilda Hilda is one, and I can't remember the other one. I have a paper on it somewhere. Um, there's two false prophets. And um, Isaiah's wife was called a prophetess because when she bore a uh, child, she gave it a name, had a prophetic sig- uh, significance. But in all of the Old Testament history, um, and, and we'll talk about this later on in ecclesiology, um, the office of the prophet was exclusively male except for a couple of very small exceptions. The office of king, of course, is male. Um, the only time you had a queen in Israel, Athaliah, that was a bad time, if you remember. She tried to kill off all the royal lines. She just missed one. Of course, 
that one was providentially saved by God, um, hidden in the temple. Um, and of course, the priest was exclusively a male thing, the office of a priest. It started with Aaron and his sons. Now, when we, we'll look at this a little bit to pique your interest, but in the priest, there are two major, um, two major, I, I want to call them priesthoods that you find written up in the Old Testament. There's, of course, the priesthood of Aaron, right? The Aaronic priesthood. When did that start? It's not a trick question. With Aaron, right? Aaronic priesthood, Aaron. Okay? And uh, that was instituted by, of course, God in the desert in the Old Testament. And uh, the Aaronic priesthood, the entire priesthood there was a picture, right? It was a picture pointing to Christ. All right? It was, for, it was a picture. All right? But it was established by God in the Old Testament. However, you also see another um, priesthood there. Anybody know what that one is? Melchizedek, the Melchizedekian priesthood. And uh, we'll talk about that in a few minutes. So we'll, we'll answer all of your questions about who Melchizedek is. If you pay attention, we'll get all those questions. And you'll know everything the Bible knows about Melchizedek. All right? Which isn't much. <laughs> but uh, he is there. So there's two prophetic lines in the Old Testament. Now, let's look at the prophetic office. What was the prophetic office? What was its function? Um, the prophet was an individual who represented God before men. He represented God to men. Okay? And sometimes we think of a prophet... If I, if I just toss the word prophet out, what, what do you think prophets do for the most part? Foretell the future. Foretell the future, alright? That, that's our English understanding of prophet. Prophet is someone who foretells the future. They're always saying what's going to happen. But what you find in the Old Testament is that 99% of what a prophet did had nothing to do with predicting the future. It had everything to do with preaching the word. For preaching. In fact, Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 14, he talks about the prophet. And he said, a prophet speaks before men. And that's really what uh, the word means. Pro me, prophet, when we get prophet, pro means before, me to stand. It's someone who stands before and gives a message. They represent God to man. And for the most part, when you look at, you think of Isaiah, you know, you think, well, all those prophecies that Isaiah had. And of course, in the Old Testament, there, there was a predictive component to the office of a prophet. But probably if we had everything that Isaiah said over his lifetime, probably 99% of it had nothing to do with prophetic utterances, and it had to do only with proclaiming the Word of God. They were preachers. All right? They were preachers. But we, we can't lose the, the concept that in the Old Testament and in the early New Testament, there was a predictive component. Why is it important that there was one in the early New Testament time? Why was there a predictive component? Well, they were looking, they were looking forward to it, but Jesus had come. It's, it's, you know, shortly after the resurrection, but yet there were still prophets. To validate the message, and also, what didn't they have? They didn't have the finished book, right? They didn't have this. Now, when the finished book came along, what happened to that office of prophet? Did it disappear completely? No, but what did it actually become then? The preachers, the proclaimers. Okay? 
So in a sense, when Pastor Jim preaches, he is a prophet in the sense that he speaks before men. Now, he's not predicting the future. All right. And by the way, just as an aside, we'll get to this in pneumatology. Don't let, don't fall for this trap of people on TV say they're predicting things. All right. That that just that's not the way the office works nowadays. There's no continuing office of a prophet. If by that you mean someone who stands up and gives you future events that are not recorded in the scripture, that that's not in operation today. Yes. And at the end time, and I think that's referring mainly to the tribulation and the millennium. All right. But what happens here, and this is topic, you know, way beyond what we're going to do today, but we're going to get to it. When you open the door for prophetic revelation, right, we should be writing this stuff down. It should not be contradictory. And what should it happen? What should happen to the things that they say all the time? And when you look, when you when you apply that standard to the stuff you hear on TBN and all that, it's it doesn't work. All right, there are predictions that are made that don't come true, and someone nails these guys down. So why didn't your prediction come true? Well, you know, God changed His mind. Wait a minute. What do you mean God changed His mind? You know, one of them even said, well, God gave him a revelation that all the prophecies that God would give him would not come true. I'm not making that up. That's what he said. Look, folks, this is nutsy, okay? This is nutsy. If you want to know what God has to say to you today, you've got a book that gives you everything in it that you need to know. All right? This is it. This is his full and divine revelation to you. And when you have people come along saying, well, God told me this and God told me that and God said this and that and the other thing, how do you validate that? There's no way to validate that other than to validate it against the Word of God. And when you validate what they say against this, what they say is patently off. So which one's right, what they say or what this says? This is right, okay? So, but we'll talk about that when we get there. But basically, in the Old Testament, a prophet was a spokesman for God. They proclaimed the truth of the Word of God. They, they took what revelation they had been given and proclaimed it. And God also gave them direct revelation. That was a certain component of, um, of the prophetic office in the Old Testament. Um, some of the things he did is he hindsight, insight, and foresight. It's a good way to look at it. Hindsight. He looked back on what God had already done. Now, in the Old Testament, did they have a lot of books and things? No. How did people learn back then? Word of mouth. Oral tradition. They would pass it down. Okay? And by the way, that was a very good way to do it because they, they memorized stuff very well. All right? So it's not like they just made stuff up as they went along. Um, it was very accurate, but they looked back at what God had done. A prophet also understood what God was doing. And there, of course, there is a divine miraculous component to this where God gives them immediate revelation. And there also was this predictive component. He spoke of things to come. And this is what, it, by the way, when we get to bibliology, one of the things you'll find, this is what makes the Bible different than all these other books. You go look at the Bhagavad Gita, you go look at the Quran, you go look at all these other books. There's one thing that makes the Bible stand out head and shoulders above all the rest of them, and that is the Bible has predictive prophecy in it. And not only does it have predictive prophecy in it, but all of them have come true. All right? The only ones that haven't come true are the ones that are yet to be fulfilled. But everything that God said would happen 
in history has. And in fact, you know, the liberals, their biggest problem when they get to the books like Daniel and Zechariah and Isaiah, they don't know how to handle them because if they date these books the way they should be dated, they have to deal with predictive prophecy. And they can't handle that, so they post-date everything. They say, well, Daniel really wrote his book in 150 B.C. after all the events. Why? Well, you know, he has predictive prophecy in that. So he can't have written it. It can't be written when it said it was. Yet all the evidence shows that it was written exactly when it was written. They just don't want to accept the fact that God can foretell the future. And it's interesting, in Isaiah chapter 40 and 41 and 42, God's, God basically throws down the gauntlet. He says, okay, bring on all your gods and let's see which one of them can predict the future. And if you can find one that can predict the future, you can go follow him. God said, there's no one like me who knows the end from the beginning. We talked about that in theology proper. God knows the end from the beginning. Therefore, him to predict something 2,000 years in the future is no different than him knowing what's happened in the past because he knows it all. All right? But they did speak of things to come. All right? They were spokesmen for God. They represented God to people. They took the message of God and gave it to people. And then you have the priestly office. What did the priest do? Well, the priest represented people before God. All right? The prophet represented God before people. The priest represented people before God. Um, he represented man. And his qualifications, then, and we're going to look at some of these in a few minutes, but uh, he had to be a man. Why? So he could understand what we deal with. For a priest to be a, a valid priest, that priest had to be a human being. He had to be chosen by God. Number 16.5, we have the choosing of Aaron. And it basically says that God chose who was going to be the, the priest. You didn't take a, um, you know, a, 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 a vocational test and you score high on the priest scale, so we're going to make you a priest. Um, it didn't work like that in the Old Testament. The way you became a priest is you had to be of the line of Aaron, right? You had to be chosen by God. All right? You didn't just decide to do that as a vocation. All right? Um, and, and there were certain, you had to be consecrated to God. You see all the stuff that Aaron and his sons had to go through to be consecrated to this task. It was a high calling. It was a high task to be a priest. You represented the people to God. And you had to do that right. Okay? Um, in the Old Testament, there were severe penalties for messing it up. In fact, what happened to Aaron's first two sons? They died. They died. Why did they die? They did something wrong. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us what they did. It says they offered strange fire before the Lord. And, you know, what that means, we don't really know. Um, but what it does mean is they took this office a little bit too lightly. They did something that they weren't supposed to do, that they knew they weren't supposed to do. And God just said, we're going to set this thing straight from the get-go. You just don't operate like that. Remember, God is the one who sets the conditions of how we approach him. We don't set those conditions. Yes. The high priest. Once a year. To go in the presence of God. And only after he did certain sacrifices for himself did he go in there. And if he didn't go in there correctly, he was struck dead. All right, so this is a serious thing. You know, being a priest was a very serious task, all right, in the Old Testament. 
You also see the king. What did the king do? Well, the king was an individual who ruled for God. He was the one who mediated God's rule over men. Not in the spiritual realm, but in the civil realm. All right? Um, and there was a couple of uh, requirements for the king in the Old Testament. Remember, God didn't initially want Israel to have a king, right? He was their king, but they wanted a king really bad. So God acquiesced and gave them a king. All right, who was their first king? Saul. How, did he win or lose? He was a loser, right? He was a loser because he was the good-looking guy. You know, he didn't... He, he, was, he was the one that everybody... You know, if you put a lineup of, okay, who can be king, everybody would pick Saul. And who was the last one someone would pick? David. But David was the one, he was the man after God's own heart. But when God established the kingly line in Israel, the king was to come from the tribe of Judah. And we see this prophetically in Genesis 49, verse 10, where there we find Jacob blessing his sons. He's on his deathbed. All the sons come in. And he blesses all of his sons. All right? Now, normally... Who would the kingly line come through? And who was the oldest? Who's the oldest Jacob's son? The eldest. Sounds like a sandwich. Reuben. I know know you just talk about food. Everybody knows that. Reuben. Reuben was the oldest son. Alright. Now why did Jacob pass over Reuben? What did Reuben do? Concubines, yes. Reuben slept with one of the Jacob's wives. That was a bad thing to do, for a son to do that. All right. Success. You know, we're going to get this down one of these days and actually have them ready. You know. Thanks so much. Um, so Reuben was passed over. Now, who's the next one in line? No? Simeon was the next one in line. And who's after Simeon? Levi. And then who came? Judah. Judah was number four. Why did Jacob pass over Simeon and Levi? No, they weren't, but what did they do in Shechem? They killed all the men in Shechem. Remember, they got them, they got them all... Part, they, they went in there and they said, Well, you can't marry our daughter Dinah unless you become circumcised. So all the men of Shechem decided to become circumcised. And while they were weak, Simeon and Levi got their swords on, went into the town and killed all the men. All right? And in fact, Jacob says they were angry. They, they were wrathful and because of that he passed over them so the next one in line was Judah and Jacob says that from Judah Shiloh will come a reference to the king the Messiah coming through the line of Judah alright in fact Christ is seen as coming from the tribe of Judah alright and even prophetically talks about in Isaiah he was a stem off of Jesse who was Jesse David's father, all right? So he's to come from the seed of David, and we see that not only prophetically in Psalm 89, but 2 Samuel 7, the great Davidic covenant, where God promises 
David. In fact, if, let's look at that. Let's look at Second Samuel chapter 7. This is an important, this is one of the important chapters in the Old Testament. Second um, Samuel 7. Um, the basic idea is David has uh, rest from um, all of his wars and enemies, all of the enemies. And uh, it says in verse 1, Now when the king lived in his house, the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. The king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in the house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. Where was the ark? It was in a tent. And Nathan said to him, Go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Now, one thing that the prophet did here, Nathan did, is what did he what did he do? He gave him counsel. He gave him counsel before he got counsel from God, right? That's a bad thing to do. But he did. But the same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, Go tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? Are you going to build me a house to live in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I not speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? God said, I never asked for a house of cedar. I've never asked for a temple. Now therefore you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep, that you should be a prince over my people Israel, and I've been with you wherever you went. I've cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, will plant them so they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. What's God promising David there? His descendants will rule forever. His, his kingdom, his house, his dynasty will be an eternal dynasty. All right? It'll be an eternal dynasty. This is the called the Davidic covenant. This is where God covenants with David that from you, from your line, I'm going to establish the throne forever. Now, did David understand all the implications of that? Did he understand the millennium and the future? He didn't understand any of that stuff, did he? All he knew that God made a promise that his kingdom, his house, his throne would last forever. Now, how can his throne last forever? Well, through the Messiah, who is going to come. In fact, Christ is called again and again, Son of David. Okay, Son of David. So, this is a very important passage. And also a good one here, Psalm 89.3 talks about this as well in the Psalms. David, of course, wrote most of the Psalms. And he speaks of this covenant that God made with him. And by the way, this is an interesting thing about this covenant. Are there conditions on this covenant? 
No. In fact, did you know that all of God's covenants were unconditional? With the exception of one which is partially conditional. What do we mean by conditional? What do we mean by that? Yeah, if you do that, I'll do this. All right. So now when, when God showed up to Abraham, that God said, Okay, Abraham, if you have faith, I will make you a great nation. No, what did God tell Abraham? I'm going to make you a great nation. Mm-hmm. And in fact, Abraham didn't have to do... Abraham had nothing to do in this, right? Mm-hmm. Now, from the human perspective, did Abraham believe? Mm-hmm. Why did Abraham believe? We'll talk about this later, because God gave him the faith to believe. Right. All right? But Abraham did not do this on his own. Abraham was not walking around wondering who he's going to serve, and God shows up. God just shows up to Abraham and says, I'm going to make a great nation out of you, and I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to make your name great. And you're going to be a blessing. And then in um, Genesis 17, when we had that weird thing where, you know, um, you see the smoking pot going between the animals, if you remember that passage. Mm-hmm. Well, they dug up some tablets in the Near East and they found out that the way you sealed a contract in those days, a binding contract, is that if you made a contract with someone, you cut an animal in half and you, you both would walk through the middle of the cut up pieces of the animal making a binding contract saying if you broke this contract then you could be cut up like the animals. That's one of their, that's sort of like signing contract. But in this case, who went through the pieces of the killed animals? God. So that meant that it didn't depend on Abraham, did it? It was God. It was God. God's making a covenant with himself that he's going to do this. And uh, the Davidic covenant, does it say, well, David, you know, if you, if you follow me, if your sons, you know, do this thing right, are they going... You know, then, then I'll make you a, a great, you know, I'll, I'll establish your kingdom forever. No. God says, I will establish your kingdom forever. If your son disobeys me, I will punish him, but I'm not going to remove my promise from him. That was God's divine prerogative. Well, that's a good that's a good uh, discussion. You know, some say, well, will Saul be in heaven? You know, will he not be there? I don't know. Okay, um, but the one thing we do know is God did not make a covenant with Saul like He did with David. With Saul, there was a conditional. God never said, "I'm going to establish your throne forever." God never said that to Saul. He did say it to David. Okay, and, and that that's what makes David different. Okay, um, you also have the Palestinian covenant. Remember that. Um, if you obey me, you get to keep the land. That's uh, Deuteronomy chapter 32 and 33. Um, that's, real, that's the only one really with any kind of condition on it. But even that condition was a temporary one because God said, I know you're not going to obey me. The land's going to vomit you out. But in the end time, I'm going to bring you back to the land. What's that Deuteronomy? Um, 32 and 33. That's the, called the Palestinian covenant. And then, of course, there's the new covenant in Jeremiah 33. Where God says, I'm going to take out your heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. Mm-hmm. We're part of the new covenant. The, po- the point is this, folks. With God, with all of his covenants, God is binding himself because he knows that if, if any covenant depended on the least bit of our effort, what would happen? You fail. You wouldn't get it. So if God doesn't do all of it, it ain't going to happen. It all depends on God. God is faithful. We're not. We're going to fail. God won't. Okay? 
But God makes this promise to David, I'm going to give you a throne forever. So let's look at Christ as the prophet. How do we know that Christ was a prophet? And by the way, in the Old Testament, did any single individual hold more than one office at the same time? There's only a couple of possible minor exceptions there. Melchizedek was king and priest. All right, we know that. Um, Moses was a prophet, and in a sense he was also sort of like a king, but not really. But there's, there's a little bleed over there. But except for a couple of real rare exceptions early on, with the establishment of the nation, there was no one person who held both offices at the same time. Yeah, so, so he, he was sort of like, he was not really a king, but he was the civil leader and he was a prophet. Moses was called the greatest <coughs> prophet. Um, but with the establishment of the kingdom, you do not see any one person holding both any two offices. And in fact, when they tried to do it, what happened? It wasn't a good thing. This is, called, this is God's separation of powers. <laughs> Remember, we have separation of powers in our in our um, government today. Of course, sometimes you wonder with the Supreme Court running amok, but anyways, you got, we got separation of powers. In the Old Testament, there's separation of powers. And what happened when Uzziah, remember Uzziah? What happened when he tried to offer a sacrifice to God? What did God do? No, not Uzziah. He was struck with leprosy. And he died a leper. That wasn't to be done. And when Saul decided he was not going to wait for Samuel to show up and I'm going to go ahead and offer sacrifice to God as a priest, what did God do? Took his kingdom away. Um, no one person held all three offices. But in Christ, he perfectly holds all three offices. How is Christ the prophet? Well, it was predicted for him by Moses in Deuteronomy 18 and John 1. What does a prophet do? He represents God before men. Okay? Did Christ represent God to men? Absolutely. In fact, Christ did it perfectly. Christ did it perfectly. In fact, there's a good passage on this in Hebrews chapter 1. If you turn there, Hebrews 1, 1. Long ago... At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. What did the prophet do? Well, Hebrews 1.1 tells you, God spoke to the people through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So, throughout the Old Testament, God in many ways and in many places and in many different kinds of ways spoke to us by the prophets, but now in the last days, we have the prophet of all prophets, Christ, who fully, completely gives us a full understanding and revelation of who God is. So Christ, if you want to think about it, is the ultimate prophet. He is the one who gave us a full understanding. And it's almost like God was given us shadows and pictures and bits and pieces of information, and then all of a sudden Christ shows up and everything is laid out all the revelation is laid out. All of it's there. Christ is the one who represents us, or represents God to us. He is the prophet of all prophets. Yeah, it began at the River Jordan. When, 
when he became a when he was anointed by the Holy Spirit for his prophetic and priestly and kingly ministry, his, his ministry on the earth, that's when it started. And throughout the Old Te- or New Testament, you see a lot of people representing him as a seeing Christ as a prophet. For example, the Samaritan woman. Remember, Christ shows up and uh, says, "Well, go tell your husband." So, well, I don't, I don't have any. Oh, yeah, that's right. You have five guys, and the one you're with now isn't your husband. Ooh, where do you get that? Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. The only way you're going to get that information is from somebody other than me. Because I didn't tell you. I've never seen you before. You don't know me. So the only way you're going to get that is God has to reveal it. She saw him as a prophet. The people of Galilee saw Christ as a prophet. And it's interesting. Christ said a prophet has no honor in his own country. You know, isn't this, isn't this Joseph's kid? I mean, I went to school with this guy. He's a messiah, come on. I went to school with him. I played ball with him. He's no big deal. Prophet as well. And even Christ, in that sense, indicates that he is a prophet. He is aligning himself as a prophet. The people of Jerusalem thought of him as a great prophet. And remember, um, when Christ said to Peter and them, said, well, who do people say that I am? Who, who, who? What do you hear about that? Well, some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Jeremiah, Elijah, or some other prophet. Most people saw Christ as a prophet. Because what did Christ do? Christ represented God to man. Christ was a preacher. He proclaimed the truth. Now, was there predictive things in what he said at times? Sure. Matthew 24. Sure. But most of the time was Christ predicting the future when he preached. No. He was preaching what was already there. Which is something very interesting. You know, when you look at, um, unfortunately, you look at a lot of the, uh, the charismatic movement, some of them in there. You know, you ask them, um, well, do you study scripture? No, I don't need to because God gives me what I need to say. I don't need to study it. Well, if you look at Christ, what did Christ do? Christ told everybody, you search the scriptures for in them, you think you have eternal life. Christ used the scriptures. Christ read from the scriptures. Christ Christ quoted the scriptures. Christ said nothing that was not already written down for the most part. Now, did Christ clarify or, or maybe add or augment what was already there? Sure he did. That's one, of the, that's one of the measures of a prophet. If a prophet comes along, they, a valid prophet, are they going to say things contrary to the Word of God? No. Everything they say is going to be in accordance with what God has already revealed. And that's what Christ did. Christ proclaimed. He said, haven't you read? I love that. You know, when the uh, guys came up to him in Matthew 24 and they were trying to trip him up. They're trying to trick Christ. The one with the resurrection. I love that one. Remember, well, you know, this, this woman, you know, she married this guy and he died and then she married his brother. That was normal in those days. She went through all seven brothers. Now, if you're brother three or four, what would you start thinking? I'm out of here. See ya. Um, but she ran through all seven brothers and they said, well, in the resurrection, whose wife is she? She, had, she was married to seven guys. The Sadducees did not believe in a resurrection. They thought it was ludicrous. Who's she going to be married to in the resurrection? And Christ says, have you not read? I love that. God is not the... He said, I am the God of 
Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but the living. What is Christ saying? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are not dead, gone. That's it. They're still alive. And he says, you don't understand the power of God. You don't understand anything. You've not read the scriptures. Everything Christ did was from the scriptures. When Christ got up to preach in Nazareth, what did he do? He opened the scriptures and started reading it. All right? So you need the scripture. And when somebody comes along and says, well, I don't need to study the Bible because I get my messages from God directly. No, no. Stay away from that. Stay away from that. Pizza and beer will really mess that up. You know, you never know what you're going to get on Sunday. Um, his enemies recognized him as a prophet. Luke 22:64. And then his disciples thought of him as a prophet. Sorry, Dave, I didn't see it back there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's there's writing prophets and then non-writing prophets. They consider Christ Yes. There, there's always a prophetic tradition in Judaism. Okay. Now, when you point out something that that you need to understand, and that is, when we look at prophets, we've got some prophets that wrote stuff down, right? We got Isaiah, we've got Jeremiah, we've got you know these other guys. Did Nathan write anything down for us? We have a first, second book of Nathan. No, he was a prophet, but he didn't write anything down. All right. And there was a lot of prophets that prophesied, but they were non-writing prophets. They preached, they taught the word of God, but they you know were not writing prophets. So there was a a tradition of prophets in Israel. And when Christ came along, they saw him as a prophet. He was considered a prophet as well. Because what did John prepare the way of the Lord? All right. And in fact, it says that prior to the coming of Christ, there's going to come one in the spirit and power of Elijah. Malachi, the last book of the Bible, or last, yeah, last book of the Bible, last book of the Old Testament, chronologically, speaks of this. So they saw John the Baptist as a prophet. All right. But a prophet is one who just represented men, or God to men, okay? The revelation of God to men. And Christ was the prophet. How about priests? This is very important. Christ is our priest. He represents men before God, alright? Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 5. This is a very important passage. Hebrews 5. Um... You can't understand Hebrews unless you understand Leviticus. And Leviticus is one of those books that you have to slog through when you're reading through the Bible because it's a tough one to get through. It's almost like going through the begats of Chronicles, you know. You get past that, you're downhill, you know. But um, it's a tough one to get through. Um, but Hebrews is a very important... Hebrews and Leviticus are very important books. See, what the writer of Hebrews is trying to do, see, is talking to a bunch of... Jews who are sitting on the fence. They have not yet made a commitment to the New Covenant. They know about the New Covenant. They know about Jesus. They know about the cross. But they are still have their um, foot in the Old Testament, in the old traditions, in the Judaistic system. And the writer of Hebrews is writing this book to say, look, you've got to move on. You can't go back. 
You've got to go forward. Now that you know the truth, there's only one way to heaven, and that is forward to Christ. You can't go back to the bloods of bulls and goats and all of that other kind of stuff. And throughout Hebrews, he's writing, the, there's like five warning passages that say, you can't go back. You've got to go forward. And one of the, one of the prominent ones there, and of course in Hebrews 10, he says, if you, if you do not go forward, you're going to trample underfoot the blood of the covenant of Christ. You're going to trample underfoot his blood. In what sense are you going to trample underfoot his blood? Well, if your conclusion is that Christ is not the Messiah, what does that imply about his death? He was a criminal and he should have died. And you're going to go back to the blood of a bull and a goat the next day to hopefully have that cover your sin. There's no going back. All you can look forward to is judgment. You've got to go forward. You've got to move on. And one of the ways in which he is pointing this is trying to show the superiority of Christ and the new covenant over the old. He starts out by showing in Hebrews 1 that Christ is superior to Moses. How's Christ superior to Moses? Well, Moses was a servant. Christ is the son. All right. Moses was a faithful prophet, but Christ is the son. Christ, the revelation is greater. Christ is greater than the angels. Christ is greater than the Old Testament priesthood. And he, he systematically goes through, and it's a masterful book when you understand it, showing the superiority of the new covenant over the old. And he also points out that even in the Old Testament, the old covenant was not seen as this permanent, never gotten rid of thing. It was always seen as temporary. And that's what he gets to in Hebrews chapter 5. He's talking about the priesthood of Christ. He says, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of man in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. Right there's the job description of a priest. What did you do? You were chosen, which means you didn't decide to do this. You were appointed this task. In the Old Testament, you were appointed this task, first of all, by God who chose Aaron, but then by being in the Aaronic priesthood, in the Aaronic line of the tribe of Levi, you were chosen, appointed to do this. And what were you to do? You offered gifts and sacrifices for sin. Commemoration. Now, by the way, the Old Testament sacrifices, they remove sin? What did they do? Covered it. Just covered it for a little while until Christ came to do the full covering. And by the way, that's the point in Hebrews. When Christ came and did the full covering, what about the blood of bulls and goats? You don't need it anymore. In fact, it's a waste of time. That's not going to cover your sin. And that says here, um, He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. What does that mean? Well, one of the things that a priest needs to be able to do is sympathize with people, Right? Compassion. compassion. Now, if you, if you have no concept of what people are going through, can you have compassion on them? You can't unless you know what they're going through. Yeah. So one of the things that the pre, one of the qualifications of the priest is that they be compassionate. Alright? That they understand man. They understand this, the, the problems. And because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sin, just as he does the people. Just because you're a priest doesn't mean you don't sin, right? In fact, on the Day of Atonement, Aaron had to offer a sacrifice for himself first before he could offer a sacrifice for the people. All right? 
all, all the writer of Hebrews is doing here is showing out, okay, here's what you know about the priesthood in the Old Testament. What did they do? They offered gifts and sacrifices. They were chosen from among men. They had to be a man. Not only did they offer sacrifices for the sins of the people, they offered sacrifices for their own sins. And it says that no one takes this honor for himself, but only when, he, when called by God, just as Aaron was. You don't do this on your own choice. You do this because you were called to do this. Now he's going to make the connection. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said, You are my son, today have I begotten you. And again in another place he says, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Psalm 110 is the quote there. So did Christ decide to become a priest? Who appointed Christ as priest? God the Father. And he pointed him because today, you are my son, today have I begotten thee. Then again he says, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, what do we know about Melchizedek? Well, not much. All right. Where do we first find Melchizedek? Well, Melchizedek shows up when Abraham returns from the slaughter of the kings in Genesis. All right. Abraham, remember, goes out, he slaughters the kings, he's coming back, and he comes to this place called Salem, which is old Jerusalem. And who is in Salem? Well, Melchizedek. He was the priest of the Most High God, it says. He was a king and a priest of the Most High God. And what did Abraham do when he met Melchizedek? Gave him tribute. It says he gave him a tenth of the top of the heap. All right? Now, we can't talk about it today, but some people say, well, that's where the tithe comes from. Don't go there. That's not where it comes from. But Abraham just gave him a portion of the booty that he took. And he, and what did Melchizedek do to Abraham? He blessed him. Alright? Now, Melchizedek is told that, we, in, in, in fact, it says he has no beginning of days nor end of life without mother, without father. And people try to make all kinds of weird things out of that. Like, you know, he was some kind of angelic being. He was, some even say he was a Christophany. What's that? Pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. No. We don't know where he came from. That's all it means. Is there any record in the Bible of his parentage? No. So from the biblical record, he has no mother, no father. We don't know. Did we know when he was born? Do we know when he died? No. All we know is that he was a high priest, a king of Salem and a high priest. And he represented the most high God, which is the true God. All right. And Abraham gave him a tithe, a tenth of the top of the heap. All right? This is very important. This is very important. When did the Aaronic priesthood start? Before or after Melchizedek? After Melchizedek. Is there anywhere in the Bible that says that the priesthood of Melchizedek was ended? No. So the priesthood of Melchizedek is a valid priesthood. This is important. This, you really need to get this argument. It is a valid priesthood. All right? God instituted the Aaronic priesthood later in Levi. All right? The sons of Levi, in fact, quite a bit later, like 400 years later, um, he instituted the Aaronic priesthood. So you have the Melchizedek priesthood running from the time of Melchizedek all the way through. And then about 400 and some odd years after the mention of Melchizedek, we have the establishment of the Aaronic priesthood with Aaron and his sons. All right? But you don't have anything about the 
ending of the Melchizedekian priesthood. So if Christ is going to be a priest, he's got to be a priest after some order. What order is he going to be a priest out of? Well, later on in Hebrews chapter 7, it talks about he can't be of the line of Aaron, right? Why not? Because there is a valid Aaronic priesthood right now. If Christ was a priest after the lineage of Aaron, he would have to come from which tribe? Levi. He had to come from the tribe of Levi. He wasn't a Levite. So Christ could not be a priest after the Aaronic priesthood. And by the way, the Aaronic priesthood was temporary in the sense that what happened every time a high priest died? He had a change, right? There's a change. There are certain things that happened, by the way, if you read the Old Testament, when a high priest died, you know, the, the cities of refuge. If you went to the city of refuge, you could stay there, but after the death of a high priest, you could go back to your own land. All right? Am I losing anybody here? All right? You have two priesthoods. And the Bible says that Christ is a high priest not after the order of Aaron, but after the order of Melchizedek, a priesthood from which we have no beginning, we have no ending, there is no record of it ending. So therefore, it is a valid priesthood that supersedes and transcends the Aaronic priesthood. Christ is not a priest after Aaron, he's a priest after Melchizedek. Yes. We're not. Yeah. And Christ was from the tribe of Judah, not the tribe of Levi. So he could not be an Aaronic priest. And the Aaronic priesthood was only for this world. Remember, it says in Hebrews 7, they have a tabernacle that they go and do bulls in, but there is a heavenly tabernacle that the Aaronic priesthood has nothing to do with. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, it doesn't. We don't know that. It doesn't. Yeah. It, and that's what the Bible says. We don't have any record of that. Okay. Some say now because that could have been Shem. Shem would have been alive at that time. Um, we don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us his parents. So we don't know his lineage. We don't know if Christ was of his lineage or not. We don't know any of that. We do know that he had a valid priesthood. And here's the other point that the writer of Hebrews makes. Is the greater blessed by the lesser or the lesser by the greater? The lesser is blessed by the greater. When Melchizedek blessed Abraham, who did Melchizedek bless also all the descendants of Abraham and where was Levi when Abraham was blessed the Bible says he was still in the loins of Abraham so therefore the Melchizedekian priesthood is superior to the Aaronic priesthood because Levi who takes tithes from the people paid tithes to Melchizedek see the importance here? The point is that Christ is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. 
And because Christ never dies, what does that mean about Christ's priesthood? It never ends and it never changes. So that's one of the things. When the high priest died, you had certain changes that happened. But since Christ will never die, his priesthood will never end. It will never stop. And even in the Old Testament, the Aaronic priesthood had a built-in expiration date. The Melchizedek priesthood does not. And that's why Christ had to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek, not a priest after the order of Aaron. Which means our That, that is a critical, critical point. You know, um, one of the things that the Bible, I believe, teaches very clearly, in spite of what many people believe, is the security of the believer. A billion years from now, God's not going to say, you know, I've changed my mind about salvation and some of you aren't going to like what happens. My, my security is forever because my high priest will never change. The priesthood will never change. It will never alter. God will never change his mind about anybody. It's an eternal thing. There's security in that. Yeah, I don't have to worry about it changing, or God changing his mind, or Christ changing his mind. He doesn't. It's an eternal priesthood. Isn't that cool? You can't follow it. You know, the wonderful thing about salvation is you can't follow it up. I mean, you can, you can sin in this life, right? You can, you can be chastised by God. But from the eternal's perspective, you can't follow your salvation up. Yeah, God, God chose you before the foundation of the world not to be saved, but to be glorified. Salvation is part of the process along the way. I can't mess this thing up. That's a wonderful thing. Because if I could mess it up, I certainly would find some way, somehow, to mess it up. And I can't. Same thing. From Levi. The Aaronic priesthood is from Levi. We call about, you know, the Levitical priesthood or the Aaronic priesthood because it was a tribe of Levi through which that priesthood came. But it started with Aaron. It didn't start with Levi. It started with Aaron, his descendant. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they trace their lineage back there. But Christ here, the important thing here is Christ was a priest. He is our perfect high priest. And in fact, you know, I, we don't have time to go through this, but you know, we have a high priest who cannot touch, be, who cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, was all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Christ understands us. Christ, why did Christ become a human so he could? Be a sympathetic and faithful high priest so he can understand what we go through. And that's why he became what he did. He had to become a man. But Christ is our high priest. Um, he performed the responsibilities of the priestly office. And it's interesting, Hebrews says not only did he offer himself, not only did he offer the sacrifice for sin, but he himself was, he was sacrifice. the sacrifice for sin. It's like the priest offering himself as the sacrifice. And that's what Christ did. Not only was he the high priest, but he was the sacrifice that he made to be our high priest. He prays and prays for his people. One of the continuing works of Christ we're going to talk about next week, what's Christ doing now? He's praying for us. He intercedes for us, part of the intercessory work. 
he blesses the people and he was a priest after the order of Melchizedek, an eternal priesthood. Quickly, Christ is king. We're running out of time. This is probably one of the great themes of the scriptures, that Christ is the king. How do we know he's king? Well, he comes from the tribe of Judah. Why do you think Matthew and Luke record the lineage of Christ? To prove what? He was from the tribe of Judah. Alright? He was in the kingly line. Alright? He has that right. Now, he's in the kingly line in what sense? That Joseph is his father? No, that's not what we're talking about there. But Joseph and Mary were both from the line of Judah. Both of them. Alright? As king. Well, right, from the kingdom mm-hmm. of Judah. And Luke depicts him as the son of man. Yes. What man, what, you know, what yeah. lineage. Mm-hmm. And both of those are important. And Mark depicts him as servant, so it's beside the point. And John predicts, shows him as the son of God. Mm-hmm. But, but that's important. Matthew shows Christ as king. Mark shows him as a servant. Luke shows him as the son of man. John shows him as the son of God. All right? And you don't need a genealogy for a servant, right? Does anybody know, care who the slave's parents are? No. Is there any genealogy for the eternal son of God? No. But there is for the son of man and his kingly line. Um, some important passages, and I'm sorry we don't have time to go through all these. I would suggest you read them. One important one is Psalm 2. Psalm chapter 2. In fact, let's just quickly look at that. Um, Psalm chapter 2. By the way, again, again, Christ is seen as Jesus, thou son of David. This was a, a uh, reference to his kingly line. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart, cast their cords from us, but he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. He will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. God says, I don't care what the nations do. I have established my king on Zion. Who's that? Jesus. In fact, when Jesus comes back, he's wearing something that says, King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus Christ is king. And if Christ is king, what are we? Slaves. Not servants, we're his slaves. We're slaves, that's what it means. We're a slave. We're his slaves. Um, We'll pick up a little bit more on this next week and we'll talk about the current activities of Christ. What is he doing right now? Sorry we're out of time. Um, Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this day you've granted to us, and I pray that you would help us to ponder and understand what we've gone over. Thank you for this time in Christ's name. Amen.